Welcome to Gen Z Speaks. We're back with another episode. Our first guest today is Professor Lawrence Lessig. Professor Lawrence Lessig is a professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School. Uh, I can go on and on about his experience uh, and different accolades, but a brief summary about his career. Um, he previously taught at Stanford Law School, where he founded the Center for Internet and Society. Uh, he's also the founder of Equal Citizens, which is an organization dedicated to reforms that will achieve citizen equality. Uh, and Professor Lawrence Lessig founded that organization back in 2016. He's also the author of the uh, 2019 book, They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy, which, by the way, has been an awesome read so far, and I highly recommend it. But with that, uh, I'll stop there, Professor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. Um, you know, considering our current political uh, climate where we see that our federal government, right, is just not working. It's been like that for uh, I don't know how many years, right? And we have a plethora of problems. There's rising economic inequality in the country. Uh, the pandemic has exacerbated uh, our inequities. We just had an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And so it seems like we're uh, in a very unprecedented kind of turmoil. But you are very focused on democracy reform, fixing our institutional structures and, you know, addressing our country in that way. Talk to us about the importance of that and, and why you think uh, democracy reform is so important, especially in this current day and age. Well, you know, the idea of democracy is that we have a platform for resolving disagreements that we agree is fair and we agree to live by. And for that platform to be legitimate, it needs to be representative. So it has to represent the views of the public in a fair and equal way. And what I try to argue in, the, in this book, which has um, now just come out in paperback, is that we don't have a representative democracy. Um, and even worse, which I think was evinced in the January 6th uh, insurrection, we have a media infrastructure that renders us in ways that uh, turn us into polarized, tribalized, crazy people, as opposed to people who have some understanding of what the issues are, even if we disagree about what to do with those, uh, with that understanding, at least a common understanding. And both of these, I, I want to call them both uh, a flaw of unrepresentativeness. They don't represent us and we don't represent us. Combined to make it so that the system of democracy we've got right now is just failing and will continue to fail until we find a way to address both of those problems. Right. I think the most fascinating part uh, of your research and, and the topics that you talk about is this idea of how money influences politics, particularly, uh, you know, I was watching a podcast of yours and you were talking about how members of Congress spend around 30 to 70 percent of their time fundraising money. And a very limited amount of time is actually spent, right, uh, talking about issues. And there's no incentive for them, right, to actually do anything uh, when, they're, when they're in power. And so what can be done about that? Obviously, the Citizens United case makes, makes it possible for super PACs to, you know, spend unlimited amounts of money. Talk to us a little bit about that, about what, uh, how we can uh, encourage, if you think that's, that's the right word, our members of Congress to actually do their jobs? Well, I mean, the way money matters is really important to isolate. You know, a lot of people talk about money in politics as if 
the mere fact that there's money is a problem. Um, you know, but that's not true. It costs money to run campaigns. We're going to have money in the political system. The problem with money is the way the money is raised. When you have members of Congress spending 30 to 70% of their time sucking up to a tiny fraction of the 1%, there's no doubt they are going to be overly responsive to their concerns and not sufficiently responsive to the concerns of ordinary Americans. In that sense, money renders them deeply unrepresentative. Um, and it's not because they're evil people. Any of us would have that uh, response to spending all of our time sucking up to this tiny fraction of the 1% to raise the money we need to fund our campaigns. So that fact that we've decided to, we've decided to privately fund public campaigns makes our representatives vulnerable to those who are most important in that funding process, which is why changing the way we fund campaigns is so critical. So right now in the United States Senate, there's a bill um, famously known as HR1, but in the Senate it's S1, but this is the For the People Act. And it's the first time Congress would enact a system of congressional public funding, taking money from fines and uh, lobbyist uh, violations, criminal sanctions for lobbyists violating the law, and using that money to help candidates raise the money they need to fund their campaigns in small contributions only. So that rather than being obsessively focused on a thousand people in your district or 10,000 people across the country who are funding you at $2,700 a pop checks, you'd be focused on the, you know, 20, 100, 50, uh, 500,000 people around the country who might be funding you in smaller ways, but because their small contributions are matched, become as significant to you in funding the campaign. So the change there is the focus on the funder. And the early, the system we have right now, the focus on the funder is on the tiny, tiny fraction who now um, are the most important funding campaigns. And if we adopted HR1, then, the ch then we'd be focused on uh, the many, many people who are funding campaigns, and, and that would make them more responsive to those people than to the tiny fraction of the 1%. That's a really important point. I think public funding of congressional campaigns really, you know, that makes them responsible to the concerns of the constituents. As you were saying, right now, members of Congress have, have they, I mean, they do have incentive to listen, but like you said, it's just human nature. The more money you give, the more receptive members of Congress will be to that. And so one of the really interesting aspects is this concept of vouchers, right? Democracy dollars. Uh, I think you were talking about this with Andrew Yang, uh, but for the sake of argument, um, some people on the right might say that, you know, we have the freedom of speech in this country and that that freedom should not be limited. Uh, how do you respond to that particular argument that uh, because someone's particularly wealthy, that should not limit them from giving an unprecedented amount of money? Well, nothing in the proposals to have matching funds or the proposal I prefer, which is vouchers. And in HR1, there's a pilot program for vouchers. Nothing in that proposal limits anybody's ability to speak. All we're doing is changing the way candidates raise money for their campaigns. So, you know, if if Bill Gates has a constitutional right to spend unlimited amounts of money in political campaigns, which he does, 
And the Supreme Court has affirmed that since 1976 in the case of Buckley versus Faleo. If he has that constitutional right, then John Sarbanes has a, a member of Congress has a constitutional right not to rely on large contributions to fund their campaigns. And if we give them another way to fund their campaigns, where they can be successful but not be dependent on this tiny fraction of the 1%, then they'll be more responsive to a wider segment of the public than this tiny fraction of the 1%. So these proposals don't silence anybody. They just empower Congress people to decide whether they want to be servants of the tiny, tiny few who give extraordinary amounts of money or servants of the many who um, give small amounts and then turn around and vote for them and get them elected to Congress. Right. I think, like you were saying, I think that the impression of, of money in politics, in my opinion, you know, uh, ha prevents a lot of voters from being an active part of, of the voting infrastructure. You know, in America, uh, for the first time in 2020, we had a very large voter turnout, but usually it's about 50 to 60 percent. And in primaries, it's even less. And so I think one of the reasons why uh, our, our country is so polarized is that a lot of Americans have just lost trust in our federal government. And they see, as you were speaking, that that the top 1% just has uh, an unprecedented amount of control. And, and, you know, reforms like HR1 are not meant to limit, limit the freedom of speech. They're just simply meant to empower individuals and, you know, reclaim their rights that that simply have not been afforded to them. Um, right. I would, I, I would say it's, I mean, empower is a sexy word, but I, I you know, I'm, I'm a boring law professor. Let me make it more boring. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, what it's trying to do is just make the system more representative. I mean, you know, your point about turnout is a really great one. So what we know about um, primaries is that a tiny fraction of the um, uh, entitled voters turn out. And those who turn out are the most partisan of the party. So if you're a Democrat and you turn out in a primary, you're more likely to be a very engaged progressive than a moderate Democrat. If you're a Republican that turns out, you're more likely to be a very conservative Republican than just a not normal um, uh, medium uh, Republican voter. Okay, why? That's extremely significant because of another inequality that's built into our system. That's called gerrymandering. So what, con what Congress, uh, what the people who draw districts do is they try to draw the districts to maximize the number of safe seats, perfectly predictable uh, seats where they don't need to worry about like fighting for those seats because they know which party is going to win. So if you're in a, you're a Republican congressperson in a safe seat Republican district, you know no Democrat is ever going to beat you. But that doesn't mean you're not afraid of being beaten. You're just not afraid of being beaten by a Democrat. You, you're positively afraid of being beaten in the primary by an even more conservative Republican. So you spend your whole time in Congress looking to the far right to make sure that you're not going to be outflanked on the far right by an even more conservative Republican who comes in with, let's say, maybe Donald Trump's support and wipes you off the field. And the same thing with the Democrats. You know, if you're in a safe seat Democratic district, you're not worried about a Republican beating you. No Republican is going to beat you here in Massachusetts. It's not going to happen. But you're desperately afraid that an even more progressive Democrat is going to step in the field and beat you. So this system of gerrymandering makes members extremely sensitive 
to the extremes in their own party, but that means they're not as sensitive or responsive to the normal views of ordinary people in their party. So once again, the system drives them to be unrepresentative of the, uh, the person, the medium voter in their own district, um, solely because of the system we've adopted in this case for drawing districts. In the money and politics case, it's for funding campaigns. In the electoral college case, it's for selecting the president. The point is there's all these dimensions of inequality we've allowed to evolve inside of our system that make us a deeply unrepresentative democracy. I think that's such an important point because in primaries, you know, candidates for Congress are only catering towards partisan voters. And that's around, I would say, 10 to 15 percent, even less of the electorate. And then you see that the lack of innovation in policies. Right. I mean, to cater to specific partisan voters, it's, it's those you know typical issues that they appeal to. And I think that's also another point that, you know, limits uh, governance when they become elected and they just don't have good ideas, in my opinion. Um, moving on, I think, Janish, you, you want to you know, bring up another point that that another reform, I think, or a, an entity that has a potential to you know, reclaim individual rights. So go for it. Right, right. So, um, you know, uh, in our current like technology, technological world, we see that blockchain technology has, uh, you know, risen in popularity, especially with the rise of cryptocurrencies um, around the world. And, um, you know, you have had many talks regarding uh, the blockchain technology and how it implements to uh, other another part of society, which is our law, our policies, our government. And, um, you know, you infamously coined the phrase code is law. And, and you know, you're very involved in this. So my, my first question just generally to you is, you know, I don't see many law professors getting involved in, um, you know, blockchain technology or like computer, uh, you know, computer texts. It was a surprise to me that, you, you know, uh, you would be interested in this type of stuff. So, you know, just generally, how did you get interested in, 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 co in code, in computer science, in all these uh, more uh, concepts that are not traditionally followed by uh, you know, law professors? Well, I, you know, I was coding when I was in high school. Of course, we were coding Fortran. And when I went to college, we had actual, you know, um, punch cards that we had to run in batch mode through our mainframe computer. So it's a long time ago. But the point is, this is something that I cared about from the very beginning. When I got to, you know, in the, in the beginning, the mid 1990s, and the internet was just being spoken of and began to take off. Um, uh, you know, what I recognized was that a lot of the policies and the values of our legal system would either be reflected or contradicted by the technologies of the internet. And the, it just so happened that the original internet embraced many of the values that we think of as important in our own constitutional tradition. So it embraced a value of freedom of speech because set up a server, set up a blog, speak wherever you want. It embraced a value of privacy because at least in the original architecture of the internet, there was no way to trace or to watch because it was a stateless system, meaning you couldn't tell that somebody was at one place and going to another place. Um, uh, and so it enabled extraordinary innovation. Like if you had a great new idea, like a voice over IP, you didn't need to get permission from the owners of the network to deploy it. You just put it up there and people could adopt it. So these features were maybe the unintended, but certainly the consequence of the technical design. And so what, what really obsessed me from the very beginning is recognizing they were just 
arbitrary or accidental, and they could be changed. And indeed, my first book was all about explaining exactly why they would change, and that we would see the internet moving from this place of privacy and free speech and free innovation to a space of perpetual surveillance, perpetual ability to control the freedom to speak, and innovation controlled by a relatively small number of um, uh, entities that would control innovation. When I said that, people are like, you don't understand the internet. You know, that's not possible on the internet. And what I said is, you don't understand what makes the internet the internet. And that's just the technical specification, which itself can be modified. And of course, I think most people think the internet has been changed to take away the privacy, to take away the innovation, to take away many of the free, uh, aspects of freedom of speech. Um, so, so that's been like my fight for more than 20 years. Um, and blockchain is just, in some sense, version two of that fight. Because many people look at blockchain and they see it as a technology that allows all sorts of um, collaborative activity completely separate from government or the ability to control it. Um, um, decentralized infrastructure, which doesn't produce trust, it just removes the need for trust. You don't need to trust anything. It's the math that delivers the results. Um, and my own view is that that's a very valuable technology in contexts where there isn't trust. So, you know, here in the United States, we don't need, you know, if you, if you want to do a commercial transaction, pull out your Visa card and use it. And if somebody steals the number, the law says that your losses have to be covered by the bank. And so the bank's going to work hard and you're going to, uh, you don't have to worry about it. It's not like you need heavy infrastructure to protect you. But if you're in Nigeria and you have a great new idea for a technology that you want to sell on the internet and you like say to somebody, I'm a Nigerian businessman, <laughs> you know, send me your money. People are going to say, wait a minute, you're a Nigerian businessman, you know, and we've seen all sorts. So, so the point is blockchain in that context gives you the opportunity to enter into the marketplace and nobody needs to worry about whether they trust you or not. Like it's there or it's not there and there's no way to fake it. So it's an enormously important potential for um, equalizing um, the world with respect to trust. We don't need trust. And when you move from the Bitcoin or the block, uh, Bitcoin blockchain world into like the Ethereum world, and you imagine on top of this, the Ethereum blockchain or blockchains now as it's evolving to 2.0, um, imagine, um, you know, uh, the general purpose programming language that they intend to deploy and therefore smart contracts and all sorts of implemented regulation through this code, it's going to be an incredibly interesting um, field to understand. And you're right, most people in my business don't have much patience for it, but I think it's extremely important to understand and, and to begin to reckon as it as it interf you know intervenes into more and more of our lives. Right, right. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate that, you know, someone has to do it, someone, you know, has to research these types of things and, you know, uh, progress, uh, innovation kind of, in a, there's, there hasn't been innovation in, in law politics or anything like that. So, you know, someone has to do that and, um, you're definitely, uh, doing that. So, um, you, you made some good points about, uh, you know, blockchain technology and, and in some of your past talks, you've talked about how the, um, blockchain can be implemented into a government system, right? And, and as a computer science student, um, that really fascinated me. It's like, how, how can we implement a blockchain and have a, have an architecture that, that um, helps a government? Or, or you even mentioned like uh, developing nations can uh, 
implement this to you know uh, have be uh, have their government be efficient, trustworthy, uh, etc. So um, and and you know the idea seems really uh, really really beautiful to me. But I, I want to ask, how, how do you see the transition from going to our legal uh, system where we just have like papers and documents to going to that more technological route? Because I, I find it really hard to visualize how that transition is going to happen. Is it going to start like small scale and then move into more or like you can have blockchain policies or, 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 uh, sorts of that matter, or just generally, how do you see that transition happen? Yeah. I mean, well, the first thing to recognize is that, you know, the level of trust that we ascribe to institutions, especially of government or, uh, of governance or democracy is not really a function of the technology. It's a function of, the trouble people want to uh, take to either sow distrust or convince people to trust it. So, you know, think of this last election. Um, after that election, 70% of Republicans said that they believe the election had been quote unquote stolen. Okay, you know, there's just no evidence of that, zero yeah. evidence. And if there had been a blockchain in that election, it wouldn't have made any difference. You still would have had the Sean Hannity's or the Tucker Carlson's <laughs> on television sort of saying, oh my gosh, it's been stolen. So then the president's saying the same thing. And, you know, the average person can't look at a blockchain and say, no, 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 it hasn't been stolen. So the point is, we, even if you had the blockchain, you need a culture uh, in, the, in the media that is committed to the truth. And uh, we don't have that right now. And that's much more threatening than, um, you know, the potential for um, a paper technology to be hacked in a way that a blockchain technology could not be hacked. But I think the point you, the question you ask is really important. Like, what is the transition? We, you know, it's, it's absolutely clear what the transition is. You're going to see smart contracts deployed in an Ethereum-like blockchain context. And the efficiency of those contracts over regular contracts will be obvious. I mean, not just the contracting, but the actual monitoring and execution and dispute resolution on top. All of that will wildly outdo ordinary contracting um, technologies like the law and courts and things like that. And you'll see that language, um, you know, it's a general purpose computing language that's sitting on top of that uh, blockchain. You'll see that language becoming more and more sophisticated, capable of contracting in more and more space. And, um, and it's going to raise lots of important questions, which is like, how much of our life do we actually leave to pure contracting? You know, so right now in real space, you have no right to contract to be a slave. You don't have that right. You know, if you say, I want to be a slave, <clears throat> pay me $200,000 a year, I'll do whatever you want. You can't do that because the law says you can't be a slave, period. Well, what if it's not the law that's enforcing the rules? You know, what if it's the technology? You know, so you've got a slavery-like term in the contract. It's not, you don't have to go to a court to enforce it. The code enforces it. And so this is the point that, you know, I've been talking about for more than 20 years. We have to ask and have a way to interrogate the technology and say, you know, do we actually believe in the values that you're enforcing? So this fight started in copyright land, you know, where the motion picture industry and the record industry wanted to deploy technology that would make it practically impossible to use the internet with respect to music or video without them perfectly controlling how it was used. And, you know, we waged wars against them saying, well, you know, the law actually doesn't give you perfect control over a culture. It doesn't allow that. It says the time you're allowed to control a culture is limited. 
And it says there's a principle of fair use. And the principle of fair use is a principle that says, I get to use it in the way I want, whether you like it or not. And there was a direct conflict between the code that they were deploying that would basically make it impossible unless you were a super hacker to use it contrary to how they wanted to control it. And the law, which said, no, 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 there's supposed to be freedom here. You're supposed to be allowed to use it whether they like it uh, the way you're using it or not. And so that conflict, you know, drove a lot of technologists to realize that they had to be respectful of the values of freedom that were built into copyright law. And um, it changed the way the code developed. And I think the same dynamic is going to happen with the blockchain. You're going to see conflicts that require um, you know, these companies to make sure that the technology they deploy doesn't conflict with values that we want to defend. On a regulatory level, though, do you fear that the United States is falling behind right, in embracing blockchain technology? Countries like China, uh, among others, seem to be embracing cryptocurrency and blockchain technology more than some Western nations. Uh, and because our you know, uh, federal government just doesn't work, do you fear the United States lagging behind other countries in this space? Well, I think in a, you know, if you step back just from blockchain, you just ask smart, um, um, smart technology. Uh, um, yes, I think there's a huge difference between China and America. You know, so in China, um, there's much greater involvement by the government to make sure that the technologies of AI or blockchain or whatever develop in a way that the Chinese government at least thinks is good for China. Um, and in the United States, the entities that are making that decision are all private entities. You, you know, it's basically, is it good for Google or is it good for Apple? Um, and I'm not saying it's necessarily, you know, I, I don't love the Chinese government, so I'm not saying it's better in China than it would be to have Apple decide. You know, maybe Apple's decisions would be better, but I'm saying one really important difference is that they have a self-consciously strategic government that is intervening in these technologies, aware of their potential, and trying to make sure they steer in the direction that the government likes. And in America, we don't have that because we don't have that capacity at the federal level and certainly not at the state level. Maybe California is an exception, but generally at the federal level. And more than that, we have a commitment by people in government is like, well, we leave this all to the private sector. But, you know, these are fundamental questions that the private sector can't or won't necessarily answer in a way that's good for America. It might be good for Apple or it might be good for Amazon, but it's not good necessarily for America. So this is a really important way in which we're behind. Um, blockchain is one example, but I think, you know, the broader example of smart technology, especially AI, is, is much more significant. Right. So just circling back, um just a couple questions because I know we're running short on time here, but circling back, you've discussed not only in this um, uh, podcast, but in previous podcasts and many other spaces from the start of the country, we saw more self-governing. We've seen more laser fare. And to the point where we are, it's interesting because that's totally regressed, right? So the federal government has taken a lot of power and the citizens kind of need to reclaim that because in order to progress and have our natural rights, we need that ability to speak. We need the ability to do such things. And so what do you believe would be the best first approach for citizens to go ahead and uh, try to reclaim that? What would be the first step? I think um, the most important first step is to end the corruption that's at the core of our federal government. 
That's the most important thing to do. And by corruption, I mean the way this system is extremely sensitive to powerful economic interests and not sensitive to what's actually in the interest of America as a whole. And, and so that corruption um, is money in politics, it's the gerrymandering, it's the games in the Electoral College, all of those things that make it so this is not a responsive democracy. And if it became a responsive democracy, then there are a bunch of other problems to think about too, but that's the first one. Um, and right next to that um, is, you know, the problem of the media, which um, is, is not, you know, doesn't profit from spreading the truth, doesn't make more money the more we understand. It profits from riling us up into crazy tribalists, you know, on the left and on the right. And, uh, you know, so long as the business model of media is against us understanding what's true, going to be hard to get a country that actually understands what's true. And, and that problem is even more difficult. You know, I could sit down and write the bill. I think HR1 is 85% of this bill, but we could write the bill that fixed government. We could write the bill that made democracy responsive and representative. Um, uh, that's not hard conceptually, uh, even with the First Amendment interpreted the way the Supreme Court has interpreted it. That's a solvable problem. But fixing the way we understand the world, fixing media, fixing the infrastructure of, you know, the Facebook and the cable news uh, uh, distortions, that's a really hard problem. And it's not even clear the government has the power because of the First Amendment to address that problem. Um, yet that problem, you know, you know, when I wrote my book, if you had told me um, you know, we were going to have an impeachment of the president and it was going to be represented in a perfectly partisan way. I would have said, of course, that's just the way this system is going to work. Fox News is going to make most money when it represents it in a purely pro-Trump way. And MSNBC is going to make the most money when it represents it in a purely um, anti-Trump way. But if you'd said, OK, but then we're going to have a global pandemic where more than half a million people are killed. Indeed, by the end of this, more people will have died from this pandemic than died uh, in the Civil War, the bloodiest battle in American history. Uh, if you'd said that's going to happen, would the press render the story uh, of the pandemic in a partisan way? I would have said no. I would have said there's a limit. Like even Fox News will stand down in the face of a global pandemic where hundreds of thousands of people are dying. And I would have been wrong. Now, so the idea that we face this, you know, existential threats you know, the global pandemic, and then we could talk about climate change as a, you know, order of magnitude more significant. And we can't even then get a commitment from the infrastructure that's informing us to, to, to play it straight, to play it in a neutral way, the way Wikipedia tries to represent stories in its articles, um, is astonishing and terrifying both. Uh, and I think that problem is deeply, deeply uh, difficult and, and just as important to solve. Definitely, definitely. So <clears throat> kind of piggybacking off of that. So it's pretty clear that human nature, we kind of uh, flow towards what the interest is, right? What it seems interesting, what seems more fun to kind of go with. And that's kind of what, you know, CNBC, uh, Fox News, that's kind of what they feed off of. And so what is it about human nature? What is it about us humans that we want, we don't really necessarily want to Go with the facts because the facts are out there, right? But it's we want to go with the uh, the dialogue. We kind of want to go with the narrative. 
And so what is it about human nature that makes us want to go with the narrative over the facts? Well, you know, there's a long story of evolution that we could tell about why we became sensitive to narrative and engagement and emotion as opposed to Spock-like uh, understandings of, of the world and facts. Um, uh, and, and, but I kind of think we need to take that for granted. I think we need to build an infrastructure for informing the public that accepts humans for who they are, right? So um, we're not going to have a bunch of people who virtuously pick a balanced diet of information, um, uh, you know, because that's what they think is the right thing to do. They're going to fall back on what's the easiest thing to do or the most interesting to, thing to do. Um, and so what that means is we, if we can't count on them, we have to build an infrastructure that provides it by default. Now, the kind of weird thing about the 20th century, or at least about 40 years of the 20th century, 1950 um, to 1990, is because we had this really compelling technology of television, but very few channels. And those very few channels were all obsessively focused on representing the news in a, quote, objective way. Um, we had an opportunity for the public to just basically, you know, go about getting what they want, but also get their daily fix of broccoli and salad, right? Or broccoli and, and, and healthy and healthy meat, because it was just given to them. They didn't choose it. They would have loved to tune into the home, home shopping network if it were available. It just wasn't available. But the point is, it, it, you know, it kind of gave them what they needed. Nobody planned it. There was no government uh, rule that required it. It was just an outcome, outgrowth of the nature of the technology of the time. That technology has disappeared. And now we live in a world where we all can tune into exactly what we want, and we're going to tune in to the equivalent of junk food all the time. That's what we want to do. And, you know, I think there's this, you know, there's this uh, movement called the slow food movement. It sort of looks at the unhealthiness of what we eat and tries to design ways of eating to make it so that we eat more healthy. And the basic argument is cook your food and eat it with friends over long periods of time and you can't help but eat in a healthy way. That, that will design your diet just by doing exactly that. There's an equivalent slow democracy movement that says, let's try to put democracy in a context where humans can handle it well. So things like this, podcasts, um, or uh, long-form narratives that are, you know, aiming to give people an interesting take on, you know, so even people, I get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but Homeland, I don't know if you guys have seen that series, but, you know, Homeland was such an important complement to America's ignorance about the Middle East after 9-11 and, and all those things. Even though it's a very biased and incomplete picture, it's a picture presented exactly as you were saying in this narrative form where you can begin to identify with all sorts of different perspectives as you watch that show. And that gives you a thousand times better understanding than you know, listening to a Princeton professor lecture you about the history of the Middle East or reading 50 books about the history of the Middle East. Um, and so I think this is the key. Figure out how humans understand and build information systems to give them politics or information about public uh, uh, issues of public import that responds to that. And I don't mean to like buy, I, you know, definitely don't mean bias it on one side or the other, present it in a way that gives all sides fairly, but in a way that makes sure that they're not sucked into this machine that profits from hate. The business politics of hate is the most profitable politics we have right now. 
And so long as that's true, we're going to suffer because um, it will win and the democracy and we will lose. Exactly. I, I would have to concur with you. I definitely agree we have to adapt to human nature and how citizens and how people just kind of flow through information. Uh, so the next thing is, like, I've heard you mention as well on the Joe Rogan show what you just said, uh, that podcasts, you know, comedians, they're great facilitators of information, right? Because people are just interested. And so what I would have to say is I just kind of want to bring into the mix the, the whole big corp, right? Big corps right now, they have a lot of power and government's kind of allowing it. I, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the Apple antitrust trial that's going on with Epic Games. And it's just quite interesting to see that. But I don't, I truly don't believe that many, you know, normal people, average, um, average, average Joes would understand what the issue is, why um, it's, it's a big deal that big corporations are taking over and kind of uh, taking over what we want. They see what the businesses are producing and they think, oh, it's okay because this is what they're giving us. So how would you say a podcast or a comedian can go about and say, hey, uh, big corps are bad. This is why they're bad. And this is what we can do about it. I guess I wouldn't frame it at that level, even if I agree okay. at that level. I, I don't, I think, you know, you frame it like that and instantly half the audience disappears because half the audience is committed to the other side. You know, I think the, the strategy is what you suggested at the very beginning of your question. What's the story that helps them see both sides? Or what's the way to get them into a place where they can't help but understand what they thought they uh, didn't understand or didn't agree with? Um, and that, for humans, is not a lecture. It's not a, you know, it's not a PowerPoint slide deck that proves to you that Karl Marx was right. It's, you know, humans who work hard and then find what their hard work has been aiming for taken away because some lobbyist has succeeded in getting a corporation protected when they, you know, spill waste in the neighborhood and destroy the value of someone's home or someone's farm or things like that. Those stories turn people into uh, engaged citizens. You know, they don't make them anti-capitalists necessarily. They make them anti-crook, anti-criminal, anti-corruption. Um, and, and I think the aim should be to tell stories in a way to bring people to the place where that's what, where they see these truths. And when they see enough of them, they're going to be more susceptible to um, arguments that uh, try to build on them. There's an amazing story by Jane Marin, the New Yorker, about a month ago, um, where she had a recording that was taken of a call by a consultant to the Koch brothers, or, you know, obviously there's just one Koch brother left, but the Koch brother network. Um, so these are conservative funders. And their question was, how do we message against HR1 or these democracy reform packages? And what the, um, what the consultant told them was, you know, reality is conservatives and liberals alike have become convinced that billionaires are the problem. Um, now, you know, that wasn't because they were brainwashed at a certain stage. It's because enough stories have gone out. Enough people have seen these stories about the many different contexts in which government can't do the right thing because there's a billion on the other, billionaire on the other side. Um, and so when you can begin to tell the stories in a way that cuts across the political field, and Democrats and Republicans both have the view 
it's going to take a while for Washington to catch up, but I think there is the potential for bringing about long-term permanent change. And that's the message of that consultant. America is against the billionaires in politics. They just don't want it anymore. They don't like conservative billionaires, even if they are conservatives. They don't want it anymore. It's all corruption to them. Um, and so they're going to support changes that change that. And that wasn't true 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I got into this fight. 15 years ago, it was completely partisan. People on the right thought money was great. People on the left thought money was terrible. Now there's no difference in right and left among the people. Even if, you know, in the parties, people like Mitch McConnell, the dark lord of Washington, D.C., continue to believe that it's the most important freedom to assure that corporations have endless influence, except when they are woke corporations. And if they are a woke corporation, then Mitch McConnell is against them speaking, um, surprisingly. I could uh, definitely appreciate that framework. Let's uh, reel Ibrahim back in to close out. Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating thing that, um, I mean, we talk about the editorialization of news media, right? And I, I just don't see, uh, I, I, I try myself to be more optimistic about it, but like you said, it, there's just not much government can do. But what I am optimistic about is your work at Equal Citizens, right? Uh, about empowering people and educating uh, students and, you know, just Americans across all ages about why democracy reform is important and how, regardless of what party you belong to, I really genuinely believe, you know, we can get behind uh, HR1. I mean, that's just like a fundamental civic principle, in my opinion. I want to end the conversation uh, on something I'm really curious. You know, you ran for president in 2016. Um, not many people um, may not be familiar with that campaign, but as a 15-year-old, I remember, I actually remember that campaign. I was watching ABC News. I think you appeared on George Stephanopoulos' show to announce your candidacy. And I was fascinated by an academic professor, right, stepping in uh, to the world of politics. I mean, I think you raised over a million dollars within the first 30 days. And there's a lot to be said how the Democratic Party basically prevented you, right, from, from getting on the debate stage. What did you learn about politics during that process? I mean, there's only a handful of people who ever run for president. So I, I, I might imagine that it, it was quite a journey. So uh, walk us through that uh, for a little bit if you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was trying to become a candidate mainly um, so that the issue of corruption would be right on the stage in the Democratic debates. And, uh, you know, at the very end, when I was going to qualify for the debates, they changed the rules so that I wouldn't qualify. And they said, basically, you're never going to be allowed on stage. So I had to stop at that point. I wasn't going to ask people to give money for a purely vanity effort. Um, you know, but what I learned is there's there, politics has the best of times and the worst of times. The, the worst of times was, you know, sitting in, in a cable news room in, in New York, which I spent an enormous amount of my time trying to do that because obviously being a completely unknown, um, the only way to um, qualify for the debates was to spend all my time trying to get television time. The best of times was actually in the field, like in, in uh, New Hampshire and in Iowa, which were the two places I was campaigning, and just talking to people because people, you know, the democratic process, at least in those states, because they're early primary states, brings out the best in people. They really understand. They don't necessarily agree, but they understand. Um, and, you know, when I think about, like, what makes me hopeful, I'm, I'm brought back. So when I was your age, I traveled to the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union, and um, was on a train to uh, St. Petersburg. And um, this English-speaking professor came up to me, and, he, and we were talking. And he said, you know, we have a, 
better system of free speech in Soviet Union than you do in the United States. I said, what could you possibly mean by that? And he said, well, we wake up in, you wake up in the morning and you read the New York Times or the Washington Post and you think you know the truth. We wake up in the morning and we read our newspaper and we know every one of them is lying to us. And so what we have to do is we have to triangulate. We have to read seven or eight newspapers and we triangulate to figure out the truth. And that process makes us really critical and critical and aware and much more sophisticated about what's going on in the world than you guys, because you guys think you know the truth just because you read it in the New York Times. And I think this dynamic is what we're seeing, especially across the, uh, the generations in, in the internet right now. You know, like my dad, God bless him, he died a year ago, but my dad, when Barack Obama was running for president, would send me urgent emails all the time. Barack Obama's a Muslim. And I would say, Dad, why do you think that? He said, because I got an email. It told me Barack Obama was a Muslim. And for my dad, you know, this was like formal speech. It was like an email. It looked very official. It told him something. It was like reading it in the Wall Street Journal. Um, but you guys, you know, you get stuff all the time. And and you know what it means to be critical, to think about, do I really believe this? Is this really true? What if, you know, let me look in three other places, or let me look at the Reddit thread and what people are saying in response to it, or whether it gets upvoted or downvoted. And you've developed a critical response. That's the only hope. It's, you know, we're kind of in the Soviet Union <laughs> with respect to truth. And we need a generation that, has, that knows how to think critically about it, because God knows my generation and older we're pretty hopeless when it comes to this capacity. And, um, but, you know, you, you'll rule, not soon enough, but eventually. Right. Well, on that note, I, I do also think that change is, doesn't come overnight, right? It takes, it takes people, average citizens, to organize and, you know, educate each other and have conversations like we're having now to move the country forward. So, but I, again, I'm really optimistic about your work at Equal Citizens. But I think that's that's all the time that we have for now. You can find more about Professor Lessig's experience and the work that he's doing at EqualCitizens.us. Professor Lessig, is there any other website, uh, any other platform where they can find you at? That's great. EqualCitizens.us is perfect. Perfect. Hey, that sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Lessig. It was an honor. And again, we're dropping episodes each week. Uh, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our YouTube channel. With that, thank you guys so much. And again, Professor Leslie, it was an honor and an amazing conversation. Thank you. A lot of fun. Much appreciated. Okay. Yes.